We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. We've been looking at the reasons All Things New exist. If you've got a worship guide, look on the back inside cover. There's this statement that sums up the reason a group of people came together over the course of the last year or so to start All Things New. We exist to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world in word, deed, and community for personal, social, and cultural renewal. Now, at the center of this statement is this idea of the kingdom of God. It's, it's right at the heart. This, the, the kingdom of God, it's the rule, the reign of God. And that, that we exist, all things new has been started in order to embrace God's kingdom, his rule, in order to embody that and then, and then to spread it, to be agents of the kingdom, to share it. Now, over the last three weeks, we've talked about the fact that, that we have the privilege of being agents of God's kingdom. And we do that um, by telling the good news that his kingdom is here in our words, by showing the kingdom in our deeds, and then in the way we relate to one another in our community life. Now it's come time to focus our attention on results. What will be the result of a group of people, any group of people, taking the kingdom of God very seriously, and not just giving it lip service, but seriously em- embracing it and embodying it and, and sharing it. And, and, and the result is really summed up in the, last state, in the last phrase of that statement. It is renewal on a personal and a social and a cultural level, that our church wants to see results. We want to see people transformed, renewed. We want to see inner change. We want to see renewal on a social level. And by that, we mean renewal in the way people relate to one another, renewal in relationships. And and not just there, but also that our, the, the culture of our entire community would be transformed. That that's what we're aiming at is cultural transformation. And, And not just this community, but wherever we go, wherever our, our lives take us. Now that's a tall order. I mean, deep, real, all the way down to the bottom change in people and relationships and culture. Every sphere of our city brought into health and wholeness. So we're talking about the transformation of the political system which is broken and needs healing. We're talking about the renewal of the educational sphere or the business world, the structures of family and recreation, the artistic sphere, the environment, all of it. So our, our vision statement, the reason all things new exist, it ends with the complete renewal of every square inch of this community and whatever community we find ourselves in. Now, 
Over the next two weeks, we're going to talk specifically about the renewal of relationships and the renewal of cities, of communities. How do communities change? But tonight, we're focusing our attention on the first kind of car in that train of three, on personal renewal. If we're going to be a body of Christians that genuinely cares for genuine renewal of relationships and cities, then we, all of us, need to be renewed. If we're going to take seriously education or art or business or the environment or family, or if we're going to take seriously that kind of ultimate goal of cultural renewal, we're a group of self-absorbed, fiercely autonomous people who fight anything that threatens our agenda and our comfort. And we need to be transformed. So tonight we're going to focus on the renewal and transformation that God's kingdom brings into our lives as individuals so that we can be these agents of change in these kind of ever-increasing concentric circles. So how does that occur? How does real inner transformation take place? How do we become better people, less selfish, less self-absorbed, less angry or materialistic or covetous? How do we become less jealous and healthier emotionally, so that our response is adequate to the given situation instead of out of proportion? How do we become healthier spiritually? How do we become healthier in our relationships and our thoughts? How do we become less insecure and more generous and more kind and more patient? This is, this is tough stuff. How does a person really change? Deep inner transformation. The answer it's an encounter with God. That's really the only way. And Isaiah chapter 6 that Tom read to us is an incredible model for that kind of genuine personal encounter with God and his kingdom that brings about deep inner change that improves us and makes us fundamentally better people. Let's look together at Isaiah 6. Let's start in verse 1. If, if you don't have a Bible, I think there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Isaiah chapter 6. If you need to use your table of contents to find it, that's okay. Um, it's sort of in the middle. Isaiah chapter 6 is, is a very famous passage of Scripture that is kind of one of the highlights of, of a lot of stories in the Bible that portray individuals encountering God. Look what happens in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now skip down to verse 3. Listen to the song that the seraphim, which is, um, means burning ones. We're not completely sure what they are. Perhaps they're angels that are composed of fire, okay? That'll come back up in a moment now, the, the incredible imagery that that 
that gives us. But these seraphim, these kind of specialized attendants of God, they're singing the song. And look what their song is. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, Isaiah saw the glory of God. This part of the Bible is called the Old Testament, and it was originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word that we get our word glory from, it literally means weightiness. The whole earth is filled with the weight of God. So in other words, take everything in the world and take the earth itself, and this is still not as weighty, as real, as important as God. The whole universe put on a scale together doesn't even hold a candle to the weight, the, the solidness, the permanence, the importance of God. He matters more than everything. And all of the things in this world that matter and that give you kind of a sense of the real, you take them all, you multiply them times a thousand, and you don't get even near to the glory, the weightiness of God. I, I like the way Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, I like the way he explains this idea of God's glory being God's weightiness. He says that if you drop an object into water that's heavier than water, there's a flood, right? I mean, the, the water kind of rushes out. If you drop an object that's heavier than ice onto a, a, a coating of ice, what happens to the ice? It breaks, right? When God comes down into your life, he is heavier than everything. Everything shifts. Everything moves. Everything bends. All the furniture of your life gets rearranged. This is what happened to Isaiah when he saw the glory of God. Everything has changed. And, and it's not just Isaiah. If you read through the Bible the Bible is filled with stories of people who have a, an encounter with the reality of God and everything changes. Why? Because God is weightier. He's more important. He's more real. He's more substantial. He's more beautiful. He's more consuming than everything else in their life. Now, the reason I think this is such a great way for us to come to grips with the glory of God is because it helps us tell the difference between two important ideas, the concept of God and the reality of God. Because you see, the concept of God, it doesn't weigh as much as you do. It's not nearly as weighty as your agenda or your commitment to your finances, or your plans. But the reality of God shatters all of that. See, the, the problem when we live in a church-saturated place like this is that we think the concept of God is the reality of God. And so we know lots of people, right, who have no problem with the concept of God, right? Right? 
I mean, our churches are filled with people who are absolutely convinced of the concept of God. For them, the concept of God is not a struggle. And, and, and that's what's going on here with Isaiah. Where is he when he encounters God? He's at the temple at worship because it was his weekly routine. Just like a lot of people, their weekly routine revolves around this kind of religious observance because they've bought into the concept of God. But on this particular day, Isaiah encounters not the concept of God, but the reality of God, God himself. And like a massive boulder falling into a pond, everything shifts out of the way. Everything bends around God. Now, now Tim Keller, is, he's hitting the nail right on the head when he says that the difference between the concept of God and the reality of God is really all about glory. That God is a concept is lighter than you are. And, and as a result, you can fit the concept of God into your categories, into your patterns. You are more substantial. Your goals in life matter more than God as creator or God as love or God as a force. He slots into your goals and your agenda. He supports your schedule. He supports your financial intentions. And plenty of people in our culture, they read their Bible and they pray. Why? Because they need God. They need him for inspiration or they need a get-out-of-trouble-free card. They need courage. And so God slots in. But when you encounter the reality of God, then everything in your life gives way to his glory. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the most substantial part of the building, right? The foundations under the thresholds, even that was shaking. Everything shifts around God as reality. Now, every single person that has met God, knows that their life has shifted around God. Things you used to believe and hold very dear, he changes. He changes even things you, 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 you think are your identity. Things that you think are okay, suddenly you see that God says they're not okay, and because God is weightier, you go with God. And things that you thought were important, God says they're not so important. And because God is weightier, it all shifts around that. And not just your beliefs, your, like I've said, your goals and plans and agendas, the way you spend your money. Why? Because you encounter not the concept, but the reality of God. So what about it? What about you? I mean, this is what we really all need to do. We really all need to listen to this passage and, and think very clearly, has my life shifted? Can I see that at the center of my life, there is a gravitational force around which everything bends? And it's not me. It's not myself. It's not this. It's not me. 
it is something other than me. It is God. Can you honestly see that your entire life is bent around God? Now, that's the idea of God's glory being weightier than anything else. In the next four four verses, we see how this weightiness plays out in a very specific pattern in Isaiah's life and really in anybody's life that encounters this. So Isaiah goes to church that day, like every other week, and he expects the same as usual at church, right? He expects to see his friends. He expects to see a lot of different things, but what he does not expect is to see God. Unfortunately, right? We just don't go to church expecting that very frequently. So Isaiah does, and he, and he meets the one whom he did not expect to meet. And look what happens in verse 5. This is the first thing we hear from Isaiah. The first words out of Isaiah's mouth. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, what's this all about? Look, I I grew up in the suburbs of Houston, okay? And, And I made pretty good grades. And then I went to college, and I... I made, you know, good grades. And then I went to seminary to work on a master's degree, and I made all A's, you know, in Hebrew and Greek, and I learned all these languages. And so then I moved to England to work on a PhD. And you had to know at least four languages to get accepted into the program, and you had to have read all these books. And I was feeling pretty good about myself, right? But I was suddenly surrounded by people. Um... Let's, let's just say, do, do you know what it's like to think that you're pretty or fast or smart or talented and you're suddenly around people that are so far beyond you, you're not even average? It shatters you. I mean, I mean suddenly I, I was around these people that showed me who I really was. And it's traumatic. I've had friends um, who moved to Nashville to make it on the music scene, and they were the best picker, the best guitar player in their whole town, and they get to Nashville, and the guy delivering their mail can play better than them. Uh, is this true, Matt? I mean, this is, this, it shatter, and does it shatter people? You see them walking all over Nashville or L.A. or New York at these kind of cultural centers. And that's just when you compare yourself to greatness on a human level. Isaiah's book is a literary masterpiece. It it really is. There there are chapters in this book that um, Shakespeare would have wept if he could have written them. He was an artistic genius. He had a way with words that in an oral culture made him an all-star. And when he gets into the presence of God, of greatness that is so infinitely beyond him, even his greatest gift, his mouth, his way with words, the thing that gave him more power and more influence than anything else, 
it's shattered. In the presence of greatness, when you compare yourself, it crushes you. It crushes your self-image. Whatever you thought you were good at, it's suddenly insignificant. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the best I've got is, is shoddy. When God is a concept gives way to God as a reality, and you see yourself suddenly in comparison to true beauty, to true goodness, to true kindness, to absolute purity. When you see yourself in that relief, all you can do is hate yourself. All you can do is curse yourself. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm distorted. Even when I'm at my best, there is such a brokenness inside of me. I'm petty and rude and selfish and angry and lustful and self-absorbed and manipulative and ungrateful and cruel and proud. And the list goes on and on and on. And I'm ruined. Every single person who encounters the reality of God, not the concept of God, not abstract proofs for his existence, not the beliefs your parents handed on to you, but every person that encounters God himself, the weighty, significant God is shattered, traumatized, ruined. And this is how you know You've encountered God and not a concept because you've been shattered. But as soon as Isaiah curses himself, and that's the first thing out of his mouth, right? Woe is me. That's verse 5, but look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, this is incredible imagery, one of the burning ones composed of fire, having in his hand a piece of fire, but even this fire can't hold, even this being made of fire can't hold the coal from God's altar. So even fire itself has to get an intermediary, has to get these tongs, right? Takes this coal from the altar and he, he's flying to Isaiah. The word, can you see it in your mind? He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. And as soon as he opens his eyes from that exclamation, there is this burning thing, making a beeline for him with a coal in his hand. And he touches my mouth and he says, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. As soon as Isaiah is traumatized and as soon as his self-esteem gets as low as self-esteem can possibly get, the minute he confesses his sin, the minute his brokenness and his utter failure to measure up to God, I mean, look at this. Verse 5, woe is me. Verse 6, then. Then. Now, there's a universal pattern. The only way that you and I can encounter God is through complete brokenness and absolute honest confession of the junk that makes us who we are. 
followed immediately by grace. That's a pattern. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it over and over, and not just through the Bible. Countless people in this room could tell stories of the same pattern playing out in our lives. It doesn't matter if you're a child, Sarah Coleman, or, or a teenager in me, or, or a very old person like Janelle. No. As soon as Isaiah confessed the truth about his own character, God exploded into his life. Now, do you see why pride is the worst sin? Because pride stops you right there. Because as long, pride is all about comparison. Pride is about finding the group to compare yourself to that makes you feel better. You just need to move, right? <laughs> pride is all about comparison, but it's all about the wrong comparison. See, pride is one inch away from virtue. If instead of comparing yourself to others, you would just turn one inch and compare yourself to true greatness to God, then your pride would shatter and it would become the doorway for an encounter with God, the kind of encounter that changes you on the inside. Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt, your very real guilt. You're right, Isaiah. You really are funky. Your lips are really messed up. You thought you were cool and all that, but you're not even close. You're so sick. You're so broken. See, this, this, nothing in this passage is glossing over the brutal reality of what's really there. This has taken away your guilt, your true guilt that really is hanging on to you. So when we get to the end of the reason that all things new exist and we get to the end for personal renewal, how do we experience that deep inner transformation? And, and I, I want to say it is the same for us. Thousands of years later, this has not changed. We are changed inside when we encounter God. And you know you've really encountered God when you've been utterly shattered and honestly confessed and immediately he forgives and purifies you. Now notice what happens now. Now that God's glory meets our need, what's next? Verse 9. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me, send me. You know, it's like Warshak and welcome back, Carter. Pick me, ooh, ooh, pick me. And God said, go and say to this people. Like I said, as soon as Isaiah confessed, God cleanses him from his guilt. And then he immediately offers to let Isaiah be a part of his incredible plan to make all things new, to be an agent. In, in the Hebrew, like I said, this was originally written in Hebrew. It's very ambiguous, that verse 9. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying. In, in, in Hebrew, it appears that God was already saying this, but he could only now hear it. He could only now hear what God had been saying all along. Only now that he's had this kind of encounter with God can he be sent out to be an agent of renewal. Now, there's something really important I want you to see. Isaiah doesn't even know where God is sending him, right? Look what God says. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah interrupts like Warshak, right? Is it Warshak or Horshak? He interrupts like a two-year-old. He hasn't even, who, who will go for us to Zimbabwe? You know, he doesn't even get to that point. Isaiah says, ooh, 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 pick me. 
Now, it's really important that you realize Isaiah couldn't give a flip about where he's being sent. It doesn't matter for Isaiah. He doesn't care. Because of this encounter he's had with God, he is unconditionally available to God. You see, when God is no longer a concept, then there are no longer strings attached to your prayers. There's no longer contingencies. When God is a reality, I'm not saying we become perfect people, but I'm saying there, be, there, there is this irresistible need to be unconditionally available to him when you've really encountered God, to move wherever he wants you to move, to sell whatever he wants you to sell, to bend your entire life around him, your plans, your agenda, they're all negotiable at this point. Why? Because God is the rock and you're the water and he's weightier and everything shifts around him. Now, over the last couple of months, on, on several occasions, we've looked at the encounter that Abraham had with God. And doesn't it play out the same way? God said to Abraham, go to the land I will show you. What land is that? Oh, I'll show you after you go. And it says that he left his family, his home, his country. He left it all in a day and age when it was far more difficult to leave that stuff than it is now. On several occasions over the last several months, we've looked at this passage out of Acts where an entire community of Christians begin to sell their extra houses. Why? Because other brothers and sisters in Christ had needs. A few weeks ago, I told the story of how Christians in the third century voluntarily gave up their lives by nursing to health people with measles in the greatest plague of measles the world has ever known. And they died for it voluntarily, nursing their neighbors back to health and taking into their own bodies the disease. Why? Because when you have a genuine encounter with God, there is an irresistible need to be unconditionally available. We could go on and on and on, story after story of people who've encountered God, and the result is that everything in their life shifted. Everything in life becomes available, and they become better people, less selfish people, less materialistic and less jealous. They're healthier emotionally and spiritually, and their relationships become marked by courage now, now, we've said this several times before. We didn't make it up, but it's so true. The gospel is the good news that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagined, but simultaneously, at the exact same moment, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope for. And isn't that, what we, isn't that the DNA of Isaiah 6? Isn't that verse 5? Woe is me. Holy cow, I'm messed up. And then verse 9, I'll send you. I'll use you. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're accepted. You can be my agent. You can be all messed up. You can be my representative. Simultaneously, that we are more wicked than we ever imagined and more accepted and loved than we ever imagined. Now look, when that becomes a reality in your life, it produces a very unique psychology. 
Now you, can be no, now you can no longer be proud about your successes because you didn't deserve them in the first place, right? Woe is me, I'm undone. And now you can no longer be shattered by failures because you're more accepted than that failure could ever erase anyway. And when you have those two things going on inside of you psychology, psychologically, it produces a very unique kind of ballast in your life, a stability. Now, all of this, this deep inner renewal and transformation that occurs when the concept of God is overcome by the reality of God in your life, this kind of deep transformation, it is essential for our church to do what we've been called to do. And we must never kid ourselves, no program, no creed, no liturgy, nothing, no well-oiled machine can help us to be who we've called, been called to be apart from each one of us having these kind of encounters with God. Now, at some point, we'll talk about how God transforms us not in the kind of cataclysmic encounters, but in the long, slow road, the, the incremental change that the soul goes through when, it yield, when you yield yourself to spiritual formation. And that's definitely a part of inner renewal. But here's the other end of that spectrum that we must always keep before us, that God is a big God and big things happen. Big things happen when I open my heart to encountering him. Let's pray.